where all my children are the light Born in the sinning, but steady striving to do right My people are warriors, all we know is to fight Pray, they see God and everything I write yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today for this podcast It's um, great to be here with you, great to be at Hilltop this, Yes This is my new favorite coffee shop in Los Angeles. I think we call that pandering, but we'll take it. I, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's true. Um, the coffee's good. good. The mission is good. Um, getting to meet uh, Yoni and AJ and talk uh, talking to them or listening to them about how they started it and why they started it and uh, being from this neighborhood and wanting to serve this neighborhood. No, I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. I'm all in. Well, very good. We'll it's see. also perhaps the only coffee shop I've been to in Los Angeles, but oh. it's still the best. It's still the best. That, I think you, all the pandering points you just tried <laughs> just, to just erase, just erase them. But this is um, actually my favorite place. I take my godson um, to Hilltop on the way to school when I have him almost every morning. Um, and it's a community business that's near and dear to my heart. And so I'm hoping uh, as we talk more about your agenda overall, we'll get into um, issues that they care a lot about. Great. But to break the ice, yeah. I have a rapid round first. Okay. So there we sip go. that Let coffee. Let me have a sip of coffee, quick, yeah. And then um, I have 10 rapid rounds for you. Ooh. You ready? I think so. It's going to be quick. All right. Okay, and you can't have both answers. You have you have to I have pick, to pick a side. one or the other. Yes, okay. there's not good people on both sides here. You got to just go with. Okay. <laughs> okay. So first is Cheers or Different World. Cheers. Oh, beta quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, two is Biggie or Pac? Uh, Tupac. That's good. You're on the West Coast. Yeah. Three, uh, your favorite season, winter or spring? Spring. Okay. Uh, running mate? Oh. <laughs> the stuff you're getting up to? <laughs> okay, I'll let you pass yeah. that one. Uh, black or white? Black. Okay, all black, everything. They don't. We see you. Um, the next one is somber. Is R. Kelly going to jail? Yes or no? Yes. Okay. Um, Trump or W? W. Okay. We have to make the choice. If you have to make yeah, the choice. We have to make the choice. Lakers or Clippers? Lakers. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then age of first girlfriend. Oh, um, twelve. Twelve, and then Brittany Look, Masita. Elementary seventh grade. Whoa, yeah. that was yeah. memories. That yeah. took you right back there. Yeah, to okay. live and die in LA. I think we went and saw that movie together, and that was my first kiss. And we had a, a signal. We were holding hands, and if one of us squeezed twice, that meant that we were gonna kiss. That was my you first kiss. You were being real. We fast, thought this man. through. We thought this through. You had yeah. a strategy. It was, it was programmed. Okay, all right. The last one is Robert or Beto. Beto. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Beto. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So speaking of that, I wanted to just um, hop right into how you got the nickname, nickname Beto. How did you get the nickname? So I grew up in El Paso mm -hmm. and it's a border community literally connected to Mexico. And part of that connection is our culture. So that if you're born Robert or Albert, or any name that has Bert in it, so Umberto is, is another one, or Isiberto, then more chances than not, your, your nickname is Beto. And so I was Beto from, from day one, but Beto is not uncommon. So you have Beto's Tacos, you have Wood Floors by Beto, your mailman is Beto, and um, the guy who's running for president out of El Paso is Beto. So that's, that's where it comes from. Um, and so, one of the things that's been really interesting to me to watch is um, kind of your trajectory. I was done working on Capitol Hill. 
um, when you came in, you uh, served a little under four terms, um, right? Yes, served little, three terms. So, so three terms, and then you announced a Senate run. Before your Senate run, what was your proudest accomplishment in the House? Delivering for veterans. So when I was running for office in 2012, and, and you know this, we unseated a long-term incumbent, heavily outspent in the race, won the race by going door to door, literally knocking on 16,000 doors over the course of nine months and listening to people. And far and away, one of the most consistent issues that came up was how hard it was for veterans who'd come back from Vietnam, who came back from Afghanistan, came back with post-traumatic stress disorder, to get into the VA and see someone. And, and the wait was literally taking their lives. Um, that wait time essentially became care denied, was connected to 22 veterans a day in this country, every single day, taking their own lives in America. When we know that if they got connected to a psychologist or a therapist, or just a visit in the VA, that could literally mean the difference between life and death. So El Paso was the worst in the country in wait times for mental health care for veterans. We turned that around, uh, made it a priority, hired up. Um, I started just recruiting people on my own. If you were a psychologist in America, watch out. You're going to get a phone call from me trying to get you down to El Paso, Texas. And that worked. And then we took the lessons learned and applied them to what we want to do nationally, expanding mental health care access. And I did it as a Democrat. So just being able to get that done in a Republican majority Congress um, was was no small feat, but but really important because those veterans whom I'd met and their family members, even more insistent and perhaps more importantly, uh, we're going to make sure that we did this. And I knew at the end of the day that I answered to them, feared their judgment, wanted to deliver for them, and we did. So, you know, it's not a sensational issue. It doesn't mm -hmm. grab the headlines. It's not going to put you on, on CNN at the top of the hour, but it's so important. And I'm so grateful that we got to make progress on that. Mission is not accomplished. Still a ton of work to do, but I'm, I'm very grateful that I got to be part of that effort in the House. And you just talked about something that I think um, is, is frustrating to a lot of people, whether they, you know, pick sides or they find themselves somewhere down the middle. And that is kind of the partisanship that we see um, hamstringing agendas in the con in Congress on both sides, on you know, on the Senate side and in the House side. Um, how confident are you in spite of the gerrymandering that we've seen in the House that um, you would be able to push an agenda through as president? Part of that confidence has to be built on winning races in 2020, in yeah. addition to the White House, U.S. Senate, adding to the majorities that we have in the House. But hope you would agree that in the state houses, which are going to control redistricting after 2020, really important to establish or add the majorities that we have there. One of the, the nearest and best opportunities is Texas, where we are um, under a dozen seats away from being able to command a majority for the first time in really my adult lifetime. That, that's an exciting prospect, and it's fundamental to answering your question about how you get the most ambitious agenda ever proposed actually accomplished, or how you face the, the greatest array of threats that we've ever known. Ten years within which to act on climate change. The world's largest prison population, disproportionately comprised of people of color. Ten million immigrants living in constant fear of being deported. If we're going to do any one, uh, much less all of those, we're going to need partners at every level 
of government. And then I think as president, in addition to making sure we're on the right side of the most important issues, making that case in communities all across the country, never ending the campaign. So going to not just Los Angeles, not just El Paso, but going to Missouri and Ohio and Iowa, uh, North Dakota, and helping the constituents of those members of Congress make the connection to the policies that we propose so that they form the public pressure to get their representatives and senators to do the right thing. I think all of that has to be part of the strategy to answer your question. And you um, talked about ambition in that answer. Um, what do you say to the folks who say, okay, you ran for Senate, you did not have a successful Senate run, why the presidency? Is that ambition that doesn't make sense? Is it blind ambition? Yeah. So the no is, is the answer to your question. Uh, <laughs> like rapid response. Yeah, no is the answer to your question. In, in Texas, something really special happened last year. Though we did not defeat Ted Cruz, we, we were 2.6 down at the end of the night. We won more votes than any Democrat had ever won. And importantly, also won independence for the first time in decades, won nearly half a million Republican votes as well. 500% uh, voter turnout increase amongst young people in Texas during early voting. This constituency that is always written off. Bethel, don't go to colleges and high schools and HBCUs and community colleges because folks don't vote in those places. And our contention was they don't vote because no one has shown up to listen to them and include their stories in their campaign. And, and we did that. Um, we helped to elect two new members of Congress, both Democrats replacing Republicans, helped to flip the House. 17 African-American women elected in Harris yeah. County literally changed the face of criminal justice in the most diverse city in the United States and a state that until that point had been 50th in voter turnout. Not because we love democracy less than you do in California, but to your point about gerrymandering, based on the color of your skin or your country of national origin, you were likely drawn out of a congressional district to diminish the power of your vote or the chance we would ever hear your voice. We've, we've neutered um, and, and denuded the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. and, and there are no protections right now in Texas, in Georgia, where Stacey Abrams would be the governor if the voter rolls had not been purged of hundreds of thousands of names. What, the case I'm making is that against those long odds, uh, we, we perform not just far better than expectations, but set the stage to also win those 38 electoral college votes in Texas, which far and away would do more than anything else to put Donald Trump away. You know, a, a, a defeat that is decisive um, so that there's not a closeness that he can exploit to call into question the results, which you know he's gonna do if he's still president of the United States come November, 2020. We have to make sure that this is a clear, decisive victory no state can produce that better than Texas. And I don't think there's a, can a candidate who can win Texas in, in the way that we can or has the chances that we have going into 2020. So that's that's our case that is also premised on what we just saw last year in Texas. Mm -hmm. And you, there are two things that I want to kind of tap um, into that you mentioned. One is um, the criminal justice system in Texas specifically, but you also talked about the legitimacy of votes. I continue to call Donald Trump an illegitimate president because of all of the reasons. But Mitch McConnell has election security measure, measures that he's not considering won't get to the Senate floor because they benefit from the hacks. They benefit from the lack of security around our voting processes and the inconsistencies. What things can you tell voters when it may not be of direct benefit to you right now, but it certainly will be right come 2020? Yeah, I mean, I think that election security, guaranteeing the integrity of the vote, the sanctity of the ballot box. You mentioned Mitch McConnell. We know that President Obama 
um, and his national security team on a nonpartisan basis yeah. approached the leadership in the House and approached Mitch McConnell in the Senate and said, look, screw party and, and the outcome in this election. We now have clear evidence that Russians have invaded our democracy and we need your help to stand up against it. And in that instance, as he does almost every time, Mitch McConnell puts the prospects of his party yes. ahead of the fortunes of, of this country. So, so knowing that we have to make investment in election security a priority going forward. And you mentioned whether or not it helps us, we just gotta do it for this democracy. A new Voting Rights Act that ensures the impediments that we described in Georgia, in Texas, in the states of the former Confederacy are absolutely removed. For people of color against whom they've been employed since the end of Reconstruction, but, but also for other populations, I think about Americans living with disabilities, more than 30 million, who very routinely tell me it is really hard for them to, to cast their vote and have their voice heard in democracy. Um, same day voter registration, automatic voter registration, yeah. and automatic reenfranchisement of those who have served a prison term, have paid their debt to society. The onus should not be on them to go re-register. They should automatically be included back in their democracy. Our estimate is that brings 55 million of our fellow Americans into the rolls, mm -hmm. into the ballot box, and the ability to shape the outcomes of, of our elections. If you couple that with getting big money out of politics, so I don't take PAC money or corporate help or special interest contributions, no lobbyists can contribute to our campaign. If we do all of that, we begin to get a democracy that begins to work for everyone in America. We've never had that, to be clear. It's nothing to restore, there's nothing to go back to. It never was in America, but it could be if we set our minds to it. Yeah, um, and then going quickly to the criminal justice issues you raised, I, I'm sure that um, the recent um, sentencing of Amber Geiger in the Botham John case right. is something um, that is, I hope, disturbing to you, but it's certainly top of mind. So speaking of criminal justice reform and the things that are needed um, to ensure parity and equity in um, the CJ reform process, what do you think of her sentencing and um, some of the ways in which her, his family, the victim's family engaged, the judge engaged with Amber? What are, what are your thoughts on that? There, there is so much that is so telling about the criminal justice system in the case of Amber Geiger and her murder of Botham Jean. Starting from the very beginning, her ability to walk into his apartment and shoot him and, and not face any real immediate consequences. The fact that the Dallas police leaked the fact that there was a small amount of weed in Botham Jean's apartment, th this is classic in American yeah. criminal justice. You know what, maybe she did walk into his apartment, maybe she did murder him, but he had drugs. Um, as though that would excuse what she did. The fact that the judge, to, to answer your question about the judge's involvement, said that the defense could use the castle doctrine, yeah. which is a stand your ground, stand your ground in somebody else's apartment while you murder them. And, and it is, it is um, a necessary exercise to imagine the races and the roles yeah. reversed. If, if a black man walked into a white woman's apartment and shot her dead in that apartment, they never would have released uh, weed. They never would have had a uh, stand your ground. They never would have uh, released him. That's right. Um, and, yeah. and I think the 10 year sentence, um, I, I do think it was um, incredibly powerful to see Botham John's brother hug 
Amber Geiger. I, I thought it, it showed his power. Um, that, that, that was something only he or that family um, could do, and, and they chose to do it. But I saw there was a really great segment on Trevor Noah where he talked about the power of white women's tears and the sympathy that that evokes in America writ large, at least in some parts of America. And, and I thought his conclusion on this was very compelling to me. He said, what if the desire were not for Amber Geiger to be sentenced for, for more than 10 years, but for all the black men who are locked up for the rest of their lives, for, for multiple life sentences, for, for decades on end, who've been shown no compassion or empathy, no hugs, no tears would move anybody mm -hmm. in their case. What if they were shown um, the same level of, of compassion or, or leniency or whatever the word is for what the judge provided for Amber Geiger in that case? I, I thought that argument was really compelling. Mm -hmm. um, and and let's, let's think about the fact that we have 2.3 million locked up right now disproportionately comprised of color, in some cases for possession of a substance that's legal in more than half the yes. states in, in the country. So a, a lot of work for us to do. I think there was a lot that was telling in that case, um, but uh, a really important moment that I think has forced the conversation that you and I are having right now, which is a good one for America. It's really tough because when I consider just how um, the hug made me feel and i'm a christian i was just like god really isn't through with me yet like i, <laughs> I can't even imagine um hugging like mm. the killer of my dad or my brother um i just i can't especially when coupled with the sentence it, it just was tough and yeah um you had another um really powerful moment i think connecting people to el paso and shooting victims um, it, it was one of your less filtered um, moments. And I think for that, I really appreciate it. I'm like, you see humanity, right, in this race um, mm -hmm. for president. And so I want to talk to you for a moment about that. Has that mass shooting, um, I know that you are already a gun control advocate. You said some things that have really disturbed um, conservatives about their guns and taking their guns away. Have you softened your position at all? Or are you still like, there's no reason for you to have an AK-47 or AR-15? That's right. Mm -hmm. I cannot make a logical argument that there's any reason for any civilian to own a weapon that was designed for war, sold to the militaries of the world because that high impact, high velocity round, it, it expends all of its kinetic energy inside of your body. It's what it was designed to do. There's a guy who's in the hospital right now in El Paso, 10 weeks after the shooting on August 3rd. One bullet went through both of his kidneys, his liver, uh, hit his intestine in three places. They've cut so much of his intestine out. It's a wonder that there's anything left in there. And he's not through the woods yet. You don't need that AR-15, AK-47 to hunt to defend yourself in your home, you really only need it to kill people. So ensuring that, that not only do we stop the sale of those weapons, but the 16 million or more that exist by every one of those back, and, and then also make sure, and, and this point driven home for me in Chicago when we visited recently, that we don't just look at the sensational mass casualty terror attacks, the 22 killed in El Paso, the seven killed in Midland, Odessa, the 58 killed in Las Vegas. They're all important for us to look at and learn from. But meeting with mothers who've lost their sons in Chicago, their sons' names may not have even made the headlines, may not be in anyone's consciousness right now. In some cases, their sons killed by police officers with complete impunity. One mother described uh, her son trying to break up a fight 
the police arrived. He ran, was scaling a fence, and was shot by the police officer when he was at top of the fence, fell down, and his body left there for the next 13 hours. And, and she wants to make sure that I know that that is what has happened and that I feel accountable and responsible for making this right. So gun violence, wherever it is and from whomever it comes, has to be addressed and called out and changed. Uh, and I think we have an extraordinary opportunity to do that right now because of those moms their their group is called purpose over pain mm -hmm. because of moms demand action march for our lives there are a lot of people who are changing the political calculus in america and making this possible and i think we're going to be able to do it um we have spent a lot of time this year uh talking about the 400th year um the, the year of arrival for um, the first documented enslaved um, African. And as a result, um, for the first time in my adult life, reparations wasn't a kitchen table conversation for my family and some of you know the other black families that I know it, it's you know traditionally been taboo. For the first time, it really um, sounds as if it's um, more of an accepted policy area for um, black people. I'm curious to know um, from your vantage point, I know you've been supportive of the concept. Um, what is the way in which you see um, reparations uh, not just being something that is palatable um, for white folks who don't want to accept that, that this country owes black people something, but in a way that really makes this a successful um, policy position that, that moves and is signed into law? And I think I'm going beyond HR 40. Um, as you know, even when Congressman Conyers was still in office, he introduced that bill every term. Right. And Ms. Jackson Lee's now taking it on. But what about the steps beyond uh, yeah. studying and developing proposals, but to actual implementation? I think just having a, a common page of history from which we can start is so important. Mm -hmm. I've been so impressed by the 1619 Project on the New York yes. Times website, as well as other efforts to bring us all onto that same page. And the argument that finds a home with me is that we mark the foundation of this country, not 4th of July, 1776, but August 20th, 1619. First time someone's kidnapped from West Africa, brought here by force, and then made to begin to build the wealth and the greatness that both they and their descendants alive today would be barred from fully enjoying and participating in. Um, despite everything we like to tell ourselves about ourselves, these victories in the Civil War, these victories in the Civil Rights Movement, you have 10 times the wealth in white America you have than, than you do black America. You have a disparity as young as five years old in a kindergarten classroom where a black child is five times as likely to be disciplined or expelled. I used to think about as a white guy, uh, insofar as I even thought about it, that, that that schoolhouse to jailhouse pipeline I would sometimes hear about, that that begins in high school. It begins when you're four or five years old in a kindergarten classroom. You are completely defenseless against the system into which you were born. Maternal mortality crisis, three to four times as deadly for women of color. So we know that whether it's criminal justice or the economy, healthcare, education, the ballot box, I mentioned voter suppression in Texas and Georgia, it is in every aspect of American life. And I think that when you look at other countries that have made more progress on coming to terms with their history, they were almost forced to do that. Um, someone brought the example of after the Holocaust, mm -hmm. everyday Germans were made to go to concentration camps and gas chambers, so they could never deny what had been done in their names. After apartheid, you had a, a Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. After the massacres 
and near genocide in Rwanda, Hutus and Tutsis brought to the same page. We've never, as a white majority, been forced to have that conversation in America. And, and so I, I agree with you, we have to go beyond Sheila Jackson Lee's bill, but I do want to stress the importance of that bill yeah. and, and forcing us to be on the same page. And then to figure out what, what that repair at the root of reparation looks like. You know, there are, there are policies from criminal justice reforms to uh, capital getting out to small business owners of color, women of color, for example, starting and growing small businesses at 14 times the rate of the yeah. average in the United States. We propose doubling community development finance institutions to get more of that capital deployed into those communities. Um, but, but all of those steps to some degree are piecemeal until you look at this comprehensively through the lens of our history and through the opportunity of, of reparation and through a commitment of discontinuing visiting this injustice on every future generation. But I think that table convened by uh, Sheila Jackson Lee's bill is the place to start that conversation. And, and so many of the people that I really admire on this on this issue, including Brian Stevenson, have really stressed the importance of, of the story that we all learn in common. So the, the other thing that I think is um, fascinating about this, you shared in a post um, that your great, great, great grandfather um, was a slave owner on two black women, um, Rose and so Eliza. Eliza. Yeah. Rose and Eliza. And one, um, just the chills I felt from saying their names. It's mm. not an unnamed, like even when you go to Brian Stevenson's museum and there's name after name of folks who were lynched and you don't know who they were. Mm. Like just knowing that there is a connection to their names and that type of acknowledgement. Are you pushing friends of yours, um, elected officials in this race with you or candidates in this race with you, elected officials who you served alongside to do that same type of deep dive and dig into their own past? Absolutely. And, and also to confront your own personal and family history, which at first, I'll just be really honest with you, when, when a reporter who discovered this brought this to my attention, I thought, well, what does that have to do with me? That was so many generations ago. Certainly, I did not cause this. I, I have nothing connected to it beyond the bloodline in my family. You sound like the Twitter trolls who respond totally. to me when I'm saying that, like, there's like there's slavery, and they're like, I didn't own the slaves. It's yeah. like a visceral defense. Absolutely, and I, I just want to be very honest yeah. with that. I was sitting with my wife when when we learned this, and I, I said that to Amy. I was like, I don't I don't see what the and deal you is. found out she her she comes she did from too. a descendant absolutely. of absolutely right. And then, and then we then we forced ourselves to talk this through, and you know, it, it is very clear when you look at the history that their ability, my, my ancestors' ability to build wealth literally on the backs of others that they owned, in some way, once it was accrued, was able to be passed on generation to generation, giving that next generation a better shot at success and accu accumulating their own wealth and opportunities and passing them on to their children. By contrast, Rose and Eliza were never able, literally by law, to amass any wealth. Maybe uh, not able to even see their their children and their descendants going going forward. And so, history worked in the exact opposite direction for them. They, they were always at a loss, behind the starting line, every generation going forward. And and that, to me, helps to bring into greater focus this issue of, of reparations that yes, I am very much connected to this. And, and really everyone in America is today, though we would like to believe that myth that and some of us would, and especially white America would, that we're, we're past that, we're, we're post-race 
in America. We have a black president. We had a black president. Everything's cool. It's like of course they, it's gave not. Us, they gave us this black president. Right. I'm like, now I'm like, now you're going to pay. So then we got this dummy. Yeah. Sorry, you can't agree. Well, maybe you can't agree to that. But it's just like what we like took a step. For, sorry, you guys. Yes, I just had a meltdown. We took a step forward and took 52 steps 50 years back. Right. Like he anyway. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So, no, everyone should have that conversation and should do that search in their family's history. I think it is healthy for us as a country. And I think it's really important for us to do individually. I think Donald Trump might own slaves right now. I think he might. So, so. <laughs> I think he might. Well, and let me, let me not make you answer it. Let me say this. The other day he held this like, um, what can I say? I don't have anything nice to say. Do you know who Uncle Ruckus is from Boondocks? No. So we need to make sure you see Boondocks. But Uncle Ruckus is this black man who I'm confident if he ever took the face off, it's a white person living inside of him. There's a conservative who I will not name because I don't want to give her any more power than she has. She, she helped to host a conference um, at the White House with Donald Trump with black Trump supporters. He goes in and Donald Trump, probably for the first time since he was born, says to black people in the room, you built this country, which I'm like, is this his way to avoid impeachment? Because mm. he's never, you know, it was just like this, this astonishing moment where it's like, yeah, duh. But this is also the same man who says, make America great again every right. chance you get. So I'm just curious to know, um, you know, when you're when you consider places of alignment with Donald Trump mm. or places where you agree. I know you agree with him that we built this. But how does that comport with everything else he's done and said when you consider um, his policies for and um, really against communities of color? Yeah. So while he does not own slaves. Are what, we what, sure about this? What we are. <laughs> what, what, what he has done is this this foundational systemic endemic racism that we were just talking about mm -hmm. that has manifested itself in every part of american life at least presidents prior to trump have at least mouthed the words that they want that more perfect union that they want to overcome that he's the first in my lifetime and maybe since andrew johnson who who is publicly in in the most racist terms that that i can even imagine um denying not only that myth, but any chance that we're gonna make progress under his administration on these issues. So we know what he said about Mexicans and asylum seekers, the, the killers, the predators, the animals, mm -hmm. the infestation, the way that we talk about insects and, and animals. Asking four women of color, duly elected by their constituents to the US House of Representatives to go back to their country, to describe Klansmen and white supremacists as very fine people. Those are the things that he said publicly, and we've heard about the shithole nations. We've heard about him saying, you know, the only folks who come from Haiti have AIDS. I want more immigrants like the ones in Norway, maybe the whitest place on planet yes. Earth today. So, so, so he has sent the signal that has been duly received by those who would act on this, like the gunman who drove from Allen, Texas, 600 miles, posted a racist manifesto before he walked into that Walmart and killed 22 people. And that manifesto echoed almost word for word, uh, and no, did echo word for word, some of the things that President Trump has said. So I, I really wanna make sure that we understand as a country, it doesn't, isn't just that he offends us, he, he, he is changing us in fundamental ways, inciting violence. We see hate crimes on the rise every single one of the last three years, not just against immigrants and Mexican-Americans, 
the Tree of Life Synagogue in, in Pittsburgh, the mosque that was burned down in Victoria, Texas, a day after he signed an executive order attempting to ban Muslim travel to the United States. Um, he, he is inviting and inciting violence against communities that don't look like or pray like or love like the majority in the United States. And, and that not only is, is mortally dangerous to our fellow Americans, it, it will once and for all, left unimpeded, tear this country completely apart. And that's exactly what is happening right now. You, I know you are in favor of impeachment of this president. Um, what do you think about Democrats' strategy, though? So they are just now, you're smiling because I'm put putting you on the spot, no, but I'm I happy think it's answer. so important. I'm happy to answer. We have um, evidence of at least 3,000 conflicts for this president, but the impeachment inquiry didn't go forward with Speaker Pelosi's blessing until there was an attack on what appears to be in some instances the heir apparent for um, the Democratic nomination. Because let's be honest, we do heir appearance in, in this party. <laughs> um, so for them, now that Joe Biden is attacked right. now, I'm just saying this is how Donald Trump supporters see this, right? So right. now it's okay to go forward with impeachment and it's probably the most politically motivated moment that they could have gone for. You're, you're, you're right in that the grounds are so much greater um, the, the high crimes that the president has committed, the potential articles that could be drawn up for not just inviting Russia back in 2016, right. but then actively obstructing the investigation once he was president, lying to investigators, which Bob Mueller called out, firing the principal investigator, James Comey, mm -hmm. trying to fire Bob Mueller when he was the, the principal investigator, defending Vladimir Putin on that stage in Helsinki, mm -hmm. Finland. Um, then not only inviting President Zelensky to do the same of Ukraine, but asking China in broad daylight. And there's nothing about doing this out in the open that makes it any less criminal. Mm -hmm. You add to that uh, his um, defiance of the emoluments clause, his ability yes. to enrich himself through his position of public trust and his, his family. And then I've got to say this, and, and the first time I was asked about this publicly, I think to my memory at a town hall meeting in Waco, Texas in 2017, I said the president's open racism and that incitement to violence against Americans based on the color of their skin or their country of national origin, to me, that is an impeachable offense because it literally tears at the very fabric of this democracy, as well as puts the lives of our fellow Americans in jeopardy. And, you know, uh, for whatever it was worth, that was my opinion more than two years ago. But to your point, I think if we tell the American people this is narrowly focused on only this one crime, yes. as legitimate as that crime is, we, we can now not tell the American people that they were right to suspect that all this other stuff was a crime because even though we hold power, we're not going to bring that stuff forward uh, in the impeachment inquiry. And so folks can then be forgiven for wondering, well, maybe he didn't really say all that racist shit or, or maybe um, that stuff with Russia was OK or, or Bob Mueller was wrong because Democrats are in power. They're moving forward with impeachment. And they're not bringing any of that stuff up. So I think I understand politically why the speaker is moving with this very narrow investigation. I just think for the sake of our democracy and rule of law, include every law that the guy has broken in, into those articles, then we really make it clear to everybody what's happening or what has happened. The other thing that's uh, been interesting is um, watching uh, who gets credit now for this impeachment inquiry. Super frustrated. Um, I think it was last week too, where they had 
six white women in the house who were like, these are your impeachment leaders. And I'm like, I'm sorry, as we sit in LA, have you all not known who Queen Maxine is? Like, uh, or Congressman Al Green from Texas, right? right? They've been championing this for a long time on the house floor during one, doing one minute talking about impeachment. And so I'm curious to know, um, as you started talking about impeachment and how reckless and lawless this president is, who were your impeachment leaders? Yeah, you, you mentioned Al Green and, and Maxine Waters, both of them so fiercely outspoken and unafraid. And I'm not sure in the case of, of Chairwoman Waters, but in, in Congressman Green's case, he received death threats yeah. right at the outset. He was also laughed off by other Democrats. Oh, this is crazy. He's Don Quixote going up against uh, windmills when he had very legitimate constitutional grounds, as did Chairwoman Waters, for the case that they were making. Politically unpopular, didn't poll well, wasn't convenient for the 2018 midterm elections, but absolutely on the right side of history at the right moment. And, and you're right, they deserve some credit now that it is popular, that a majority of Americans support this, that impeachment is moving forward. They were the early leaders who were unafraid on on this issue. And and I really want to make sure, and I don't know all the details of the impeachment investigation, I really want to make sure that they're able to play the central role that they deserve, Mm -hmm. given the fact that they were on this before literally anyone else in the House and and almost anyone else in, in the country. And I think that's only just, and frankly, it's only going to make the case stronger because they've been working on this for so long. I wish that that were uh, gonna happen too, but I think that's gonna be tough. As you um, start looking forward, um, well, first there's an immediate thing. You have a deba- another debate coming up. That's right. Um, as you consider what you need to do to kind of break through, um, I think that it's safe to assume you're not where you wanna be in the polls. Correct, um, that was a very nice way to put it. <laughs> not where you wanna be in the polls. So what, what do you think about breaking through? Um, it, it, to me, I know, uh, you know, when you have that moment in the spotlight, the pressure is on to perform and sometimes people overreach and do something that falls super flat. Totally. What are you hoping to do in the next debate? Yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, it's an amazing trick to try to pull off, which is to acknowledge the importance of that moment, the amount of pressure that's on you, and then to act in a way that defies that pressure mm-hmm. and, and looks at that moment just as it would be any other I think to some degree in Houston in the last debate, I was able to find that place where, you know, in the previous two debates, I've been so loaded down for bear. Uh, here's the opposition research, research on Kamala or on, you know, uh, Bernie or on whomever, none of which I wanted to use because I don't, they're not my enemy. They're not the problem in this country. It's Donald Trump and the direction that we're headed. So, so freeing myself from that and just focusing on what it is I want to do for America. And, you know, was asked a question about institutionalized racism, which I just answered in the most direct, honest, most passionate terms, same on gun violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it really, you know, almost um, overcame me because I'd just been in Odessa where I'd met the mother of a 15 year old girl who was shot and killed and bled to death in, in front of her mom because the ambulances couldn't get there because so many people had been killed across that community on that day of mass shootings. And I just felt so responsible to them. And and I felt like I needed to speak for them on on that stage. And it really connected with with people. So I I think I think that's my my task to to be honest, to be authentic, to to give voice to those I've heard, especially those who aren't often invited to the table, are not often heard on a debate stage. Uh, I need to do my best to represent their interest, their urgency, 
and, and their passion. And then I've got to just be respectful of the will of this country. You know, if there's if there is a case for my candidacy, I'll do my best to make it. People will respond or they won't respond. Um, and at the end of the day, I remain committed to serving this country and doing everything I can at this defining moment of truth. I, I really feel this is make or break for America. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that we make it through and overcome what we see in front of us. As a nominee, we're supporting the, the heck out of the nominee, whoever that is. Okay, then that's a good question. If you're not the nominee, who are you going to throw your support behind? You wouldn't expect me to say anything other than the following, which is it's it's impossible for me oh, to think about. Oh, come on, Beto. You've been True. so real and raw. Yeah. I yeah. thought I could bring back my no. rapid fire. It would no. be the run and make route. I was yeah. gonna... No, I didn't answer it the first time. And okay, top two. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> that was really good. That was really good. Um, Keep your head up, Beto. Look I up know. there and tell me the truth. Good vibes only. Oh, really? Yeah. That's yes. what we're doing? At, at Hilltop. All right. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you, Angela. Really appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate it. it. Grateful. Thank, thank you all. You. Thanks, Hilltop. Thank you. That's it. Surviving to do right, my people are warriors All we know is the fight, praying that we God and everything all right, yeah Who are my children of the light? Surviving to do right, my people are warriors All we know is the fight, praying that we God and everything all right Now call me the youngest daughter I say I'm just my father's daughter Like Christ, my body beating, but I refuse to holler Won't give them the satisfaction, but I let the tears flow Steady praying for them, Father, forgive them, they don't know that the revolution would not be televised Twitter, Facebook, excuse me as I scrutinize Out of the mouth of this babe comes perfected praise As if you needed a sound